the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' answer to the question, how do we flourish? And at this point, we've now made our way through all of the Beatitudes, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And in these blessed statements, Jesus gives us a bit of a sketch of what life looks like when you're already in the kingdom of God. So if you're just joining us, go back and read the Beatitudes. This is what Jesus envisions for people who are citizens of his kingdom, people who follow him and walk in his ways. And last week, we looked at the conclusion of the Beatitudes is that the kingdom of life is a public life. There is no private faith. There is no hiding the light of Christ at work in your life. If you are truly flourishing, if you're walking in the ways of Jesus, it is for the whole world to see. But after providing this 30,000-foot sketch of what a kingdom life looks like, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount lands on the ground and gives us concrete uh, uh, illustrations and examples of what it looks like to walk in the ways of Jesus here and now, what this kingdom flourishing looks like in practice. After all, Jesus is deeply concerned about righteousness. This came up in the Beatitudes. Righteousness is what the people of the Beatitudes hunger and thirst after, and it's righteousness that God promises to satisfy. So from here on out, the rest of the sermon is, in fact, about righteousness. Once again, the definition we're using for righteousness in this series is this. Righteousness is whole person behavior that aligns with God's nature, so who God is, God's will, his desires and purposes, and God's coming kingdom. Righteousness is whole person behavior that aligns with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. In short, it's walking in the ways of Jesus and becoming like him. Because when you're in Christ, that is one and the same as being in the will of God. And so the rest of the Sermon on the Mount shows us what this can start to look like for us when we truly are in this process of righteousness. But we very quickly will see that righteousness isn't something we can attain on our own. It's not just a lifestyle we adopt. It's not an add-on to your existing life. It's not becoming more humanistic or altruistic or mustering up some more positive qualities, as important as that may be. It's much, much more than that, and it's much, much better than that. What we see is a brand new kind of righteousness that is only available because of what Jesus accomplished and what he fulfilled. So wasting no more time, let's open our Bibles up to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't own a Bible, you'll see these gray church Bibles. Take one of those home with you. Everything will also be on the screen behind me. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, our Savior says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. If you've ever been to an Anglican ordination service, Uh, You know, let's say it has a flair for the dramatic. You know, we get dressed up. It's like a two-hour service, and rightfully so. It's it's the equivalent of a wedding. But within the service, there's this ominous-sounding document 
called the Oath of Conformity. And I've sworn this oath. Preston has sworn this oath. Countless priests throughout the ages have sworn this oath. And it has a few commitments, but one of them is this. I do believe the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be the Word of God and to contain all things necessary to salvation. And therefore, I hold myself bound to conform my life and ministry thereto. And in a way, this oath shouldn't be surprising. This is the box I think you should expect a minister of Jesus Christ to check. This should be standard fare in the Christian faith, or at least it should be. The disciples sitting around Jesus, right in this moment in Matthew's gospel, wouldn't be all that surprised about everything Jesus has just said. In a way, he just affirmed all of the Jewish scriptures, what we now call the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying he intends to be faithful to what the scriptures say and command. He intends to live in continuity with the story of Israel and what God has been doing in and through his people. And so it wouldn't be a shock to them that every detail of scripture matters to Jesus. From the iota to the dot, from the greatest commandment that God gives to the smallest detail, Jesus wants to fulfill it. And this would have been expected from any faithful teacher in ancient Israel. In a way, Jesus just checked the box of the ancient equivalent oath of conformity. But there's also excitement going on in this scene. Let's remember, Jesus has just gathered his disciples and a crowd have followed them up a mountain. And he's teaching them. He's delivering this sermon on the mount. Now, mountains in ancient Israel are spiritually charged places. This is where God meets his people. And Jesus, a young, exciting rabbi, is taking these people up a mountain. In a way, he's acting like Moses. We looked at this in our third sermon. And on top of this, there's this quiet and building hope among these followers that maybe this Jesus of Nazareth is the prophet that Moses promised. And maybe more, maybe, just maybe, he's the Messiah we've been waiting for. And so the question isn't just, will he check the oath of conformity, but how will he fulfill the law and the prophets in a distinct and unique way if he is the prophet, if he is the Messiah? What's his take? Well, Jesus doesn't hold back. In verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And suddenly, this isn't standard fare. This isn't even close to what is expected. This is the equivalent of me handing you a basketball and saying, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to be better than Kawhi Anderson or Steph Curry. You know, you need to outshoot them or outdribble them or outdunk them or outbasketball them. I don't know basketball, but <laughs> better yet, get in the court, get playing and exceed them. And unless you're Caleb Clausen, this is just nonsense. <laughs> if we're trying to find a spiritual equivalent, this might be like saying, Outserve Mother Teresa. Outpreach Billy Graham. Out Oprah, Oprah. I don't know how you do that. <laughs> now, one of these is not like the other. Jesus has just said, I took you a little bit. Jesus has just said to the people listening to him, If you want a life of true kingdom flourishing, if you want to be fully alive, then you need to be better than the best. You need to be better than the best. 
That's what they just heard. The average person has just been told that they need to compete and excel in a spiritual league that they never thought they were even qualified to enter. So we have three points we need to look at. Who are the Pharisees? Why do we need to exceed them? And how do we exceed them? Let's begin with this. Who are the Pharisees? One children's Bible describes them as extra super holy people, which is just a really apt description. If you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees tend to get a bad rap, and rightfully so in many instances. But before we look at that, I want to highlight some of their positive traits. They weren't entirely bad. In their day, they were actually seen as religious and devout. They were an important sect within ancient Judaism. The word Pharisee literally means separatist. They were people who separated themselves from the ordinary, who held themselves to a higher standard, who did their best to hold every matter of the law in high regard and to walk it out. They were the righteous untouchables who separated themselves from the impure or the corrupt or the unclean, and so they were superior to the masses. And from their own perspective... They were fulfilling all the law and the prophets. They were doing what was required for righteousness. They were doing it all down to the iota and the jot. And so here's just a a few bullet points that give you a sketch of the Pharisees' priorities. They took Scripture very seriously. They were devout and sought after purity. They tithed. They were committed to making disciples. They met in small communities to study Scripture and pray. They observed the Sabbath. They believed in the resurrection and miracles and angels. They expected the Messiah. Now, does that sound like anybody to you? I mean, aside from like tithing or the Sabbath, does that sound like anybody to you? It kind of sounds like us. It kind of sounds like people who might be affiliated with the small e evangelical movement of of Christianity. These are the sort of things we value. Yes, there's some differences between us and the Pharisees. We believe the Messiah has come, but that list describes us. And so we need to pay attention here. Because all these religious activities, all these commitments we just described, although important and good, they can all seriously miss the mark of the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what's the problem? Because according to the Pharisees and their own understanding, they're they're hitting the mark. They're fulfilling what's required of them. They're being faithful. They believe that by separating from the corrupt, by seeking to fulfill the law, they're actually helping God set the stage for the Messiah to come. They're doing what's required of them. But according to Jesus, he says, you haven't even met the entry level requirement for my kingdom. So the best of the best is still not good enough. Which brings us to our next point. Why? do we need to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? If righteousness is whole person behavior, the Pharisees struggled with partial person behavior. They got the actions right, but they missed the weightier matters of the heart. 
Just by way of reminder, when I say heart, I don't just mean emotions. I mean your innermost being that includes your emotions and your mind and your desires, where you exist and move and have your being. That's the heart in Scripture. And Jesus says time and time again, the Pharisees miss the weightier matters of the heart. They appeared to do all the right things, say all the right things, appear at the right events, and they concluded that was enough for righteousness' sake. But Jesus says, not even close. In an interaction with the Pharisees later in Matthew's gospel, they grumble at Jesus and his followers for not washing their hands, which to be fair, could be gross. But what they're saying is your, your, your followers aren't washing their hands in the right ritualistic way according to our traditions. They're not fulfilling righteousness. What's wrong with you, Jesus? And in response, Jesus just lays down a critique. He says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So the Pharisees, they got the action, right? They cleansed their hands in the right way. They ate the right foods. They kept kosher. They did all the right things, but they missed the matters of the heart. Or as Jesus will say in that same passage, the outside of the cup is clean. Good job, but you left the inside filthy. And we see the same train of thought run through the entire Sermon on the Mount. In the very next passage, Jesus reflects on some of the Ten Commandments. And the first one he reflects on is, you shall not murder. But then Jesus says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus doesn't just apply the command to the actions we take. He takes the command of God and applies it to the heart. He applies it to thoughts. He applies it to the inner life of a person because that's always where the issue begins. It turns out you can break this command of God having never murdered someone, having simply thought something poorly of someone, having hated someone internally and never acted on it. You broke this command. And what Jesus is really implying is that if you, in fact, happen to murder someone, it's not the first time you broke the command. It is the accumulations of thousands of transgressions that led to that moment, as small as thinking a hateful or spiteful thought towards someone, toward saying something negative about them or to trying to harm them and then finally taking action. Jesus applies these commands and shows how they're fulfilled in a radically new way. Most of us, we'd look at that command and be like, all right, doing pretty good. Haven't murdered anyone today. And Jesus says, no, not so fast. And he won't let it go. You, you almost want Jesus to lower the bar. Let it go. Make this a little easier on us, Jesus. And he says, no. In the sixth chapter of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is still in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what he says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. And then he critiques some of the common practices of the Pharisees. Praying in public in order to be seen and praised as holy. Going on long prayers, eloquent prayers, so that you're seen as holy disfiguring yourself and looking pale so that other people know you're fasting, 
giving generously in public, but sounding a bell so people know how generous you are. The Pharisees, they're doing the right things. They're praying, they're fasting, they're giving. It all appears very spiritual, very pious, but they're driven by the wrong motivation. They want to be seen and commended by others, and so they have the reward. They have the regard of public, they have the regard of society, but they have the disregard of God. Once again, they're missing the weightier matters of the heart. I want to turn to one last illustration of this. In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this very convicting parable, and it goes like this. Two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Tax collectors were notoriously despised as as crooks in the ancient world. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. Now, in one sense, the Pharisee in the parable was completely right about himself. He wasn't like all the people he compared himself to. He separated himself from the impure and unclean. So he wasn't an extortioner or unjust or an adulterer or despised like tax collectors. He had a great set of spiritual practices and disciplines. But in his prayer, he essentially walks up to God and pulls a Maui. He says, you're welcome. You're welcome to the God of the universe. That was a parent joke, Moana. Anyways, the rock, it didn't land, it happens. The Pharisee walks up to God, praying to God, says nothing of God's glory or attributes, but only praises himself. The Pharisee says, God, aren't you lucky to have someone like me? You're welcome. But I'm afraid this typifies a posture so many people take in our secular age. You might not believe in God. You might be exploring or figuring that out. I get that. That takes time. But have you ever said, look, if there's a God, he'll see I lived a good life and we'll be all good. In other words, you're saying God will owe you a thank you. God will see that and say, thank you for living such a pious and upright life, bringing me glory with your every thought, word, and deed. You're good on you. But that's the posture often people in the secular age take, and I sometimes see it pervade the church. That in all these good actions we take, all these things we accomplish, that one day God is going to say, thank you. But this is not whole person behavior that aligns with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. You see, the Pharisees, they reduced their religion and spirituality down to externals. The things they had to do, the things they understood were required before God. But it only involved part of them, the part they could manage. They were very disciplined. They could manage actions. No one can manage the heart, so they they focused on the externals. And so they thought they were justified, which means they were in right relationship with God. They were set right with God because they were doing all the right things. But they weren't even close. And that's why we have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. They had completely missed the life of the Beatitudes. They completely missed it. They're not poor in spirit. 
because they think they're already justified. They don't mourn over sin because they think they can manage it. They aren't meek because they think they have the strength required to discipline their lives. They don't hunger after righteousness because they think they've already found it. It's the antithesis of the kingdom life in the Beatitudes. And so if your impression of Christianity is that it's a matter of being a good person, it's a matter of doing good things, you've yet to understand the message of Jesus. One scholar says that the way of Jesus is a radical interiorization. A radical interiorization. Jesus, more than any teacher, seems almost obsessed with your inner being more so than your external actions. And that's because Jesus is not content to reduce you down to the things you do because the substance of who you are is found in the heart. And so you can't reduce Jesus down to someone who's just going to instruct your morality. That's not what he's after. He wants to be Lord, even over your heart. So finally, we have to ask, how do we exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees? Now, you might think, I need to sign up for some sort of spiritual boot camp. Go on a retreat, get my act in order, get some new disciplines, put in the work, put in the effort, you know, work hard, perseverance, and then you'll exceed the Pharisees. But when Jesus says you have to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, he is not saying that you need to beat them at their own game. He's not saying that you have to outperform them or outmaneuver them or outdiscipline them. They already had all that down. The problem is that they had the whole game wrong. The movement of Jesus is not about performance. It isn't about doing the right things. It isn't about learning a new set of behaviors or becoming more religious or becoming more spiritual. You can highly regard scripture. You can pray. You can fast. You can give. You can gather with others. You can believe all the right things you want and still completely miss the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus wants that radical interiorization. He wants a righteousness for us that flows out of the heart. Jesus wants us to have a whole person behavior, not a partial person behavior, a whole person behavior that aligns with God's nature and will and coming kingdom. But who's capable of that? Who's capable of changing their heart? I mean, most of us struggle to change our habits, our disciplines. Most of us struggle just to pray each day or read our scriptures each day or go to the gym each day, you know, to keep your hands free of Dorito dust each day. You know, maybe that's just me, but you struggle with just the externals. But who's capable of changing their inner lives? Who's capable of applying every commandment of God to your thoughts and your desires? Not just suppressing angry thoughts toward others. Not just suppressing or ignoring lustful desires towards others, but eradicating them. Who's capable of changing your motives so that when you perform spiritual things, when you give money or you pray, you're not doing it for acknowledgement. You're not doing it to give yourself a sense of assurance that yes, you are indeed spiritual, but you're doing it for an audience of one. You're doing it for the eyes of the maker of your soul. Who among us, I ask you, is capable of giving their whole person to God? To truly love the Lord your God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. I want to give you a little hint. 
The reason we put the summary of the law before confession is to remind you that you can't hit it. You can't attain it. You fall short in ways known and unknown of that high command. What's required, though, to enter the kingdom of heaven is this whole person behavior righteousness that Jesus is talking about. That's what he's saying. But the good news for us is it's not righteousness that Jesus commends. Go back to that parable with the tax collector, the one who couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven because he knew how far he fell short of God's right and good standard, who could only beat his breast and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's who Jesus commends. That's who walks away justified. Same word as righteous. That's the one God says, I will make right and give a place in my kingdom. Why? Because the person has poverty of spirit. They're poor in spirit. They see they can't meet the entrance bar to enter the kingdom. And they come to God and they ask for mercy. That's where true kingdom righteousness must begin. Not performing, not doubling down, not trying really hard to become a good person, but an honest self-assessment of your soul before your maker saying, I don't have what it takes. I fall short in big and small ways every moment of every day. Lord, have mercy on me as sinner. And when you get to that place, the light of the kingdom of heaven is starting to shine. We can only exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees because Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. Because Jesus fulfilled, we can exceed. Say it with me. Because Jesus fulfilled, we can exceed. We have to grasp this point as we move forward in the Sermon on the Mount. It turns out there was nothing status quo at all about what Jesus said in his opening remarks of this passage. By saying he fulfilled the law and the prophets, Jesus doesn't merely mean he always did what was right or required of him. Of course, this is true, but he meant so much more. When we hear law, we immediately think of rules and obligations. When we hear prophets, we think of unusual people foretelling the future. But an ancient Israelite would hear law and prophets and think covenant. The law was the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. And these books describe how God called a people to himself and said, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. Yes, here are some rules for us to maintain a healthy relationship. But when an ancient Israelite hears law, they don't immediately think rule. They think relationship. They think how I exist and live with the God of the universe. In the same way, when they hear prophet, yes, they might think of someone who can foretell the future. But when you look at the prophets, they're always calling people back to law. They're always saying, we need to get back to the heart of this relationship. We need to get back to Torah observance. And they also called people forward saying, but God's making promises because we keep failing at this covenant. So here's a new covenant that God has promised that one day there will be a new relationship, a new standard, a new way of existing with God. And so when people hear law and prophets, yes, Jesus fulfilled certain ways of living. But even more so, when Jesus says, I've fulfilled the law and the prophets, he says, I've brought the whole story to completion. I've brought the whole story 
to completion. I have been the one true faithful Israelite. I've been righteous in ways you could never be. My whole person has always aligned with God's nature, will, and coming kingdom. He's fulfilled that. Jesus has also fulfilled what the prophets foretold. If you go through Matthew's gospel, Matthew loves to point this out. Thus he fulfilled the prophets. You know, and, and sure, a false Messiah could try to orchestrate certain events to make it look like he's fulfilling prophecies. But Jesus fulfilled prophecies about the nature of his birth, where he was born, circumstances surrounding his birth, and even where he grew up. He couldn't orchestrate that sort of thing, and Matthew likes to point that out for us. He's fulfilling the prophets. But even more importantly, Jesus fulfilled everything God started to do in Israel and promised to one day do. Jesus is saying, I'm bringing this whole shebang to completion. And as Jesus said, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he could accomplish something that great because he was no mere prophet. As Jesus says later in Matthew's gospel, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Who can say that? An ancient Israelite, like we do, believed that the Old Testament was inspired by God, that these are God's words, and Jesus is saying, those actually will pass away, but my word won't pass away. Who could possibly have that kind of authority? Whose words can outlast the law and the prophets? Only the one whose word fulfills all the law and the prophets. Only the one whose word spoke the very universe into existence, God himself. God himself. God came in the person of Jesus to fulfill the great story of salvation that he was writing for the world. And God came in the person of Jesus to accomplish everything he promised to do. And it was accomplished on the cross. It was accomplished on the cross because in Matthew's gospel, there Jesus says it's finished. It's finished. But what did he accomplish? The new covenant. This brand new way of relating to God. According to the prophet Jeremiah, in the new covenant, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. You see, through the cross, your sin has been put as far away from you as the east is from the west. And the reason Jesus bore your sins in his body and shed his blood to forgive your sins is because as high as the heavens are from the earth, so great is God's love for you. Should you come to Christ crucified, you will see and receive the forgiveness of your sins, past, present, and future. God will remember your sins no more. And God also said to the prophet Jeremiah, I will put my law within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. You see, this is a radically new way of relating to God. God is saying, you will be my people, but you're not going to have to conform to an external code. You're not going to have to memorize a bunch of commandments because I'm going to write my words on your heart. You're going to know them in your innermost being, and I'm going to change your fundamental heart so that you can walk in my ways. You see, Jesus, he doesn't just want us to become better people. He doesn't just want you to be a good person who's more moral. He wants a renovation of your heart 
So that in the depths of your innermost being, in that darkness, in that hollowness, in that emptiness, suddenly the light of God's presence shines. And you receive his Holy Spirit through repentance. And you're suddenly able to live in a radically new way that you were unable to live in before. And so this is the crux of the matter as we approach the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. There's two errors we can fall into as we study this sermon. The first is this, thinking that you can do it. The first error is like the Pharisees, thinking that you have enough resolve and discipline and strength to put the Sermon of the Mount into action in your own life. But the second error is thinking that you can't do it. Thinking that the sort of life Jesus describes in this sermon will just have to wait. And that it doesn't matter what we do now because all is forgiven. But the truth is, is that Jesus makes this kingdom life possible in a fallen world with people who have broken hearts because he comes to dwell in us. Should we believe in his words, his words are eternal life. He takes residence in our souls. He fills us with his spirit. And he says, you're right, you can't do it on your own, but with me, all things are possible. So when we cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, That's how we enter the kingdom of heaven. We receive the gift of his spirit and he empowers us to become the people who aware of our need for mercy also receive power. Receive the ability to become the people of the Beatitudes. Because Jesus fulfilled, we can exceed. Say it with me. Because Jesus fulfilled, we can exceed. Because Jesus fulfilled, you can truly be a person of the Beatitudes. You can truly be a person who starts to grow as a shalom maker, a person who goes out into the world as God's ambassador, showing people what life can be like as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven because you actually are one. Should you cry out for mercy and receive the gift of God's spirit, all things are possible, even the Sermon on the Mount.